Today's show is sponsored by Okta, the leading independent identity solution. Okta provides best-in-class authorization so your customers and workforce can safely access what they need most right when they need it from anywhere. Organizations around the world trust Okta's identity cloud to sign in, authorize, and manage users, whether it's employees, contractors, partners, or customers. And with Okta's developer tools, you'll never have to build authentication again. Our customizable code blocks are flexible and future-proof with easy-to-use APIs and SDKs, so you can do less coding and more shipping. Okta is dedicated to building the most reliable, neutral identity platform because it means protecting more than a login. Identity is protecting people, their ideas, their work, their brilliance. It's protecting your future with confidence. Learn more at Okta.com. That's O K. T-A.com. Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast. We're coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. As we're recording this, it is the middle of June, and here in the United States, we're getting our first big heat wave of the summer, and uh, specifically for us here in the Delp household, um, I have a Jeep, and I I took the, the doors off the Jeep, I took the top off the Jeep, and because of that, I haven't driven it since. My wife and my kids are driving the Jeep everywhere and enjoying the great weather we are having this week. Um, There is predictions, uh, especially in the central parts of the United States, of uh, some power outages and some other things coming up. So everyone stay safe out there. Stay cool out there. As we jump into Cloud News of the Week, I completely admit, um, if I had to sum up the news this week in one word, it's meh. Um, It's a slow week this week. But... With that, let's jump into our first story. Our first story comes from our good friends over at DigitalOcean. They are starting a new program. And it's actually, this is one of the more interesting ones this week, without a doubt. If you write documentation, more specifically, more along the lines of think tutorials and examples and things like that, for DigitalOcean, they will pay you. And they're willing to also make a donation to a charity of your choosing as well. I I thought this was a really creative way to help kind of build up and and, and supplement some of the areas where maybe they don't have the staff to do it or maybe they have budget constraints or let's be really honest, sometimes doing stuff like this just isn't super fun as well. And so if you're somebody out there that has a passion for this, a a passion of teaching others and and documentation, they are doing it on a topics basis for June when they announce this program. They're looking for tutorials on Node.js and also Prometheus as well. And if that doesn't um, rock your boat, then come back next month and there'll be um, new topics for next month as well. And with that, we're going to move on to our second story. Andreessen Horowitz is going into the publishing business. They're they're founding something called Future and Future.com. So, hey, they, you know, went and uh, spent a bunch of money probably to go get the Future.com domain. But um, think of this as longer form content. But longer form content, uh, of course, where they're doing investments, 
but opinion pieces, future-looking pieces, and editorial. So this isn't like a news hub or anything like that. And longer form content, of course. You know, they've had great success with their podcast and, and with their blog um, that they when they push out articles there as well. So the way I see this is just an extension out into longer form media. Uh, they have specifically said well, they're not going to go into video at this time. So just long form written content. Um, if you go check out it again, it's future.com. It, it definitely feels, and they admit it, a bit of an MVP type of product. But this is where I'm, I'm a bit meh about the whole thing because it just feels like a big blog. Um, and I personally just don't read a lot of the long form content anymore. So me personally, not my gig. Uh, but I know there are others out there. Everyone learns differently. Some folks like to listen. Some people like to watch. Um, and of course, there are those that really, really like to absorb this kind of content, sit down, take some time, read these articles. Uh, good opinion pieces, good authors. So if that is of interest to you, I, I suggest you go check it out. For our third piece today, Google Workspace is, I, I like to, you know, jokingly say it came out of beta, um, but it is Google Workspace is generally available. It has, of course, been around for a while, but it is available to just about anyone now. So you can get a Google Workspace individual account. If you're a Gmail user today and you want to go all in on all of the other apps kind of in the Google ecosystem, you certainly can do that. Um, and it is available, uh, like I said, for just about everyone uh, starting right now. And lastly, we have for news this week, um, our friends over at Redpoint uh, have written an article uh, that was an interesting read that is the figures that will move venture capital market for the next five years. And it goes into depth of the relationship between 10-year rates and venture capital investment and how much has happened each year. And, uh, you know, the long and short of it is, hey, if interest rates are low, cash is cheap, you get a lot of investment. Um, and of course, uh, as the rates go up, well, guess what? Now people aren't as willing to risk or put that cash at stake and venture capital funding goes down. Um, short article, but a lot of information, very, very dense article. Uh, so if that is interest of you, it is in the show notes and please go check it out. And with that, we're going to wrap up cloud news for the week. And right after the break, we're going to be talking to Alex Ratner about the evolution of AI and more specifically data labeling for models and, and building applications as well. Today's show is brought to you by CBT Nuggets. You know how much we value ongoing education on the Cloudcast. And CBT Nuggets is exactly what Aaron and I wish we had when we were trying to get our certification early in our careers. CBT Nuggets is all about bringing a personalized touch to learning about cloud computing, virtualization, networking, DevOps, and much, much more. Whether it's their hands-on labs with personalized coaching or the online chat functions that come up with every instructor-led course, CBT Nuggets' team of experts is always there to help you get the most from your training and your PASA certification. You can check it all out at cbtnuggets.com slash cloudcast and sign up for a free trial. You get access to the full catalog of great training, including virtual labs, quizzes, and other premium features completely free for the first seven days. That's cbtnuggets.com slash cloudcast. Today's show is sponsored by Datadog. 
a monitoring analytics platform for cloud-scale infrastructure and applications. Datadog provides dashboarding, alerting, application performance monitoring, and log management in one tightly integrated platform so you can get end-to-end visibility quickly. Be proactive with your monitoring strategy and catch issues before your clients are impacted. Start managing the overall health of your environment with a free Datadog trial. Go to datadog.com cloudcast for the free trial. That's datadog.com cloudcast. And we're back. And folks, you know, if you've listened to the show for a little while, you know there's there's always a couple of things that, that we really love. Uh, first and foremost, um, you know, Aaron and I are just sort of technically curious. We love digging into new topics. Um, we've been sort of fascinated with the AI space, the ML space, kind of data management for a long time, even though neither one of us uh, can sort of scratch the surface on how the technology actually works. But we sort of love talking to the folks who... Uh, who are living behind it, and you know, from time to time, we uh, we find out about sort of some new breakthroughs that we think you know really kind of knock down a big barrier that we've heard people have had problems with in the past. And so today, we're really excited to have a chance to talk to Alex Ratner, who is co-founder and CEO of Snorkel AI. And and Alex, uh, we're going to talk about the way that you guys are, are really kind of revolutionizing how to not only automate data labeling but really kind of move this thing forward. So first off, welcome to the show. Great to have you on. Thank you so much, Brian. Super excited to be on the show. And and uh, I don't know if we can claim to be, you know, new and spry because we've been around, I guess, since, you know, 2015, hacking away at the same, same you know, core simple problem in some sense. But, uh, you know, uh, definitely lots to, lots to talk about in terms yeah. of, you know, both what we've been working on and also, you know, just the, the general perspective uh, about the space that it's born out of. Yeah. So super excited. Yeah. And I mean, you guys are uh, you know, Snorkel as a company now, about two years old. Um, before we kind of dive into it, give yeah. us a little bit of your background, sort of your background, uh, maybe some of the work that uh, you were doing uh, prior to Snorkel at, at Stanford, but also just give us a sense of kind of the founding team. We were kind of fascinated with kind of the, the breadth of, uh, you know, this group of people that, that you've brought together and, and kind of, you know, how it all came together. Yeah, no. So, so, I mean, I, I think the, 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 the team is, is, is you know, the most special part of, of the whole snorkel experience, both company and then you know, back at the at, at Stanford when it was a, a lab project. Um, but you know, pretty pretty standard story uh, uh, at least as far as spinouts go. You know, we we started um, as members of a research lab. So um, one of my co-founders, Chris Ray, is a professor at Stanford. Uh, I uh, worked with him as my advisor. Uh, we were looking around for a project, uh, said project. Um, you know, now uh, spun out as a company. Uh, you know, uh, became a little bit bigger and more interesting and sprawling than we had originally thought. So other people, you know, joined on and took their own kind of unique uh, views and components of it. And um, then, you know, the five of us together became the co-founding team when we spun out in 2019. So that's the team story. But but let me let me tell you the, the project story in brief. Yeah. Um, uh, I think so. So, so myself and, and Chris and, and the team, you know, especially back in the research phase, thought of ourselves ML systems researchers. So, you know, do stuff around the algorithms, the theory, the models, et cetera, but really very interested and anchored on this question of how do these machine learning AI technologies actually get to production? And what are the workflows around them in production? And what are the bottlenecks and the pain points? And and that, you know, uh, 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 always kind of anchored the research. And so we started, um, you know, looking at a lot of the things uh, that people traditionally get stuck on. And then circa 2015, we noticed this this big sea change starting to happen. There are the rumblings of you know uh, this uh, we were getting from our 
we worked with a lot of a lot of the um you know big cloud companies who were who funded the lab and and, mm-hmm. and were and are great collaborators and seeing this whole new class of AI machine learning model come out uh, often called deep learning or or more broadly representation learning models and uh, basically coming out and 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 being not just more powerful with some pretty uh, amazing results uh, you know around that time but also much more push button um, and much more uh, actually commoditized and or just you know well supported by open source accessible platforms and frameworks and 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 tech than ever before so we saw the the writing on the wall that um, you know machine learning was not only going to you know get more powerful uh, and and you know we saw the obvious trends of increasing adoption uh, and and all the kind of supporting trends you need of increasing increasing data availability and and all that kind of stuff but that it was also going to become um, uh, that the the traditional bottlenecks and pain points that you'd see companies you know big tech companies throwing entire engineering teams at the machine learning models uh, what's often called feature engineering of what particular aspects of the data the feature the, the models look at the algorithms that train and serve the models the infrastructure they run on were at least in a relative sense going to become much easier to use more powerful and less of a bottleneck but you know there's no such thing as free lunch what what gives in return well the change that was happening was that all these models that were both more powerful and in some sense easier to use because they did more automatically or they do more automatically present tense are also much more data hungry and so we saw this pain point shifting uh, uh, towards what's called uh, uh, the training data in machine learning. I'll get into that in a second. But basically, the data that fuels all machine learning was becoming the real pain point in the bottleneck. So at the highest level, you know, we said, look, we think machine learning and AI uh, in the next you know, five, 10 years or a couple of years is, is really going to shift to being increasingly about the data and increasingly being data-centric. And so let's study it from the angle of the data. Let's build systems and algorithms and formalisms around what you do about the data. And um, and specifically this thing called the, the uh, training data. So in machine learning, if you want to, um, let's take a supervised uh, learning task. So if you want to uh, help hospital systems classify chest X-rays for which ones need to be read urgently or help a telco classify network traffic anomalies or help a bank classify contracts or call transcripts or pull information from private company financials or forms or help underwriters make decisions around insurance, you know, uh, in, in the insurance space, you know, all these things are, are applications that are served on top of our platform Snorkelflow today. They're all basically, uh, they all basically consist of an ML model having to make a decision. And the way that machine learning or AI models learn to make a decision is that they see lots of historical examples labeled with the correct decision or label. And that's called training data. It's kind of like taking, like learning to take the SATs by seeing lots of questions and answers. Right. So we basically said, look, the training data is used to be the small thing, but now these modern models are just beasts that require massive training sets. Um, you know, uh, and and uh, the ML community is treating this like it's some kind of, you know, third class citizen of the process, this pre-processing step that you just kind of download a labeled training set and get going. But in the real world, you know, labeling all this training data, collecting it, labeling it, cleaning it, managing it uh, takes, you know, quarters, uh, takes person, you know, weeks to person, months, even person years uh, of, of trained expert time in many settings and is a huge, is, is often the bottleneck in actually using AI or ML. So we looked at this and we said, look, you know, we think training data and more broadly training data management is going to be, you know, the pain point and the center of AI moving forward, um, or at least in, in many use case settings. 
And um, let's actually try to build a platform that, you know, puts table stakes on the models being taken care of, the rest of the infrastructure. We figure there are lots of smart people out in the, you know, many in the open source doing great work there. Um, let's build a system that focuses on the data as the center of the, you know, iterative process of building an AI application. So that system was uh, and is uh, Snorkel. And, um, and, and that was the first key idea. And the second key idea is, okay, if data really is where it's at, let's come up with a better way uh, to deal with it than just having humans label it one by one by hand, which is kind of the legacy approach that still a lot of machine learning rests on. And let's instead, you know, and so you take one extreme, which is, you know, there's lots of, you know, lots of money still being spent on it, uh, especially in the self-driving industry, uh, lots of, you know, marketing and hype and venture dollars behind it, but it, it really is a decades old legacy approach that can work sometimes, but is just a non-starter in many settings. Um, especially when you need trained experts to do the labeling, you have privacy constraints, your data is changing all the time, uh, which covers a lot of the real world. So we said, okay, you know, we're working with, you know, government agencies, big tech companies with rapidly changing data, doctors, you know, lawyers, uh, you know, all these folks who just, that's not an option. So we can't do that. Then on the other extreme, you have people in the AI space and, you know, hundreds of vendors these days will tell you, hey, we have a push button auto magic solution. And, you know, we, we, we scratch that as a goal right away because we just don't believe that you, you fundamentally ever can or want to take the human out of the loop. Right. So what we were left with was how do we put the human in the loop with it looking more like a software development process? You know, sit down, write some code or push some buttons, you know, build a training set and then a model in uh, an afternoon. And so that was the idea behind Snorkel in a nutshell of labeling data programmatically and making it really fast and iterative and easy for, for humans uh, to do that and having that be the process, essentially having AI turn into a process of programming your data uh, more so than anything else. Yeah. And um, yeah, that was, it was, it was a, it was a science project at first. That's why we chose a silly name like Snorkel. Cause uh, I actually had a cold at the time and my uh, advisor, uh, Chris uh, insisted that he thought it sounded funny when I said it because I had a <laughs> terrible cold and I said, well, what the heck, this project's going to be dead in, in, in a week. Um, uh, he said, I want to consign you to being on stage saying that word in, in your uh, especially nasal tone for, for years. And I said, that's nonsense. Again, it's going to be done in, in, a, in, you know, in a week when, when the project falls through, like most research projects do. Um, but it ended up hitting a, a, real, a real pain point that was resonant even back then amongst people. You know, we started having tons of people just you know, coming to our office hours saying, hey, training data is exactly our problem. What's, what's this solution you're talking about? And, you know, became, you know, I don't know, opened up a lot of interesting avenues to speed up AML. So that's how we got here today in a nutshell. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. And, and, and the labs you're talking about are the, the, the Stanford, you know, AI labs, for those of you who are yeah, sorry, listening sorry. along. No, it's okay. It, it's interesting. It's, it's funny, your, uh, uh, your colleague sort of, you know, wanted to, to make fun of you for a name. I know I did that one time. I had an internal project that we called uh, Mackinac because I grew up in Michigan and the, the Mackinac Bridge was this <laughs> thing. And it was just funny to me to watch these these folks from, from Boston with their accents try and say this this word. So I can appreciate uh, I can appreciate that. Now, l- let me just- I love that. I want to put something in context just so I can, because we, we get a chance to talk about a lot of topics and it's it's always good to see if it's similar to something else. If, you, if you've been in the database world or even if you were like in the storage world um, and you were ever dealing with stuff that was like 
data lakes or your emerging databases or your emerging data sets. We, we, you know, we always sort of live through this problem of what people used to call ETL or extract, uh, you know, transform and, yep. and label. Is there a similarity um, in, in sort of what, I don't want to put it in the same bucket because ETL, you know, has a certain place, but like, is it, is it sort of similar in that, yes, we have tons of data, but the data without some sort of context around it is somewhat difficult to have a starting point? Or is this, you know, what you do with, with training data labeling a very different sort of domain? Oh, so I think, I think there are problem space, if you will. Yeah, I mean, so, it, you know, it, in some ways very different, but there are a lot of strong connections. And actually, uh, you know, uh, funnily enough, so, you know, uh, I think that the first course that Chris and I uh, uh, kind of rewrote and taught together was the intro database courses, pardon me, at Stanford, um, that, you know, came from database background and, and still, you know, think about that a lot. Yeah. And uh, so we actually were thinking about ETL a bit. We were thinking about, um, you know, the idea of, of having these kind of ETL functions um, that uh, now we call them labeling functions that would kind of help clean up this data and then you'd have a model that would learn to do it mm-hmm. more capably uh, from them. So there was definitely some of that inspiration. And then there's another connection, just so it's not confusing if people are listening along, but also looking at some of the stuff we've worked on over the years or through the company. We often use, or rather customers often use Snorkel Flow to build uh, information extraction models. So one of the use case types, and we can get into this later if you if you if you want. One of the use case types that is, you know, that that is most applicable because it uses and it really needs these very data hungry models. Um, is is anything dealing with text with, with unstructured text? You know, right. pulling stuff out. And so, um, Snorkelflow both has kind of some connection to that the idea of you know, yes, data is useful, but not until you add structure to it. For example, labels, um, uh, but also so as not to confuse, the other connection point is that we actually, Snorkelflow is actually used to power many AI applications that are basically doing ETL or information extraction type uh, workloads these days. Okay, cool. So uh, Things like pulling clauses out of contracts at a bank, imagine, or, or tagging entities in news articles, th- things like that. Yeah, okay. Um, so you've mentioned Snorkelflow. Uh, for, for those of you listening along, Snorkelflow is, is sort of uh, your core platform, your core technology um, give us a sense of, you know, what's, what's under the covers of it and, and what's it actually doing in terms of, you know, creating this ability to, to label uh, mass amounts of data and make it useful for these models. Yeah. So, so snorkel flow, uh, and I'll, 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 I'll say higher level to start, but snorkel flow is, you know, basically, um, uh, a, a platform that's meant to take this process of building machine learning models and AI applications. And again, all starting with building the data that they rely on that fuels them and make it, you know, in a nutshell, look more like an iterative software development process uh, than, you know, this kind of 80 to 90% upfront, just, you know, hand labeling uh, exercise. And so Snorkelflow supports that entire iterative loop uh, of, you know, actually labeling data uh, can be by hand in the platform, but also, but most centrally programmatically yep. uh, by letting users write what we call labeling functions basic idea is that rather than say asking your, you know, uh, you know, legal associate at a bank to, to, uh, or your, your doctor friend to sit down and, you know, label a hundred thousand contracts or a hundred thousand electronic health records, have them write, you know, heuristics or bits of their expertise, uh, like, you know, look for this keyword or look for this pattern or look for this, uh, et cetera. 
um, kind of like a bridge from old, you know, expert knowledge type input to modern machine learning models using one to power the other. So uh, Snorkelflow is an IDE basically and, and, and has a, a no-code UI component as well that lets uh, people either via code or by pushing buttons uh, for, for uh, even you know, non-developer subject matter experts say to programmatically label their data by writing these labeling functions. And then uh, uses a bunch of modeling techniques, a lot of which uh, was actually you know, the work that that uh, um, you know, the co-founding team and I did in, in, in our kind of thesis work around how you take a bunch of um, programmatic data and clean it up and turn it into a final um, set of clean training data for machine learning models. And then actually in Snorkelflow, you can you know, autom- you know, basically push button train uh, you know, best in class open source models. You can then analyze where they're succeeding or failing and then use that to go back and iterate on your data. And there's a Python SDK throughout the whole thing. So many of our customers will mix and match. They'll use Snorkelflow to you know, create the training data set and then train a model on some other system, uh, et cetera. But what Snorkelflow aims to support is this basic iterative development process where you know, rather than just spending months to label a training set once and then being stuck with it and having to throw it out and start all over again, if anything in the world changes, your upstream input data changes, your downstream objectives change, making it, again, more like an iterative process where you you know, push some buttons or write some code that labels data, you compile a model or you know, train it, but you can think of it like compiling. And then you go back and debug by, by iterating on your data. Yeah. So everything centers in snorkel flow around looking at your data and iterating on how it's labeled uh, to improve model performance. I'm curious. Um, so you, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned in there, there's a, there's, there's a Python SDK, which, for anybody who you know sort of works in in data science, data modeling, right? Like Python, sort of your language to Frank, you know, sort of the, the language you use or R, you know, a couple yeah. of them. But you know, that that's sort of the the language that you know, you kind of how you do your programming. But I, I'm curious, like in today's world, do do data scientists sort of consider themselves programmers, or is there still sort of a Look, I work on the numbers. I'm good at sort of building models and the numbers, but I don't think of myself as a programmer. Like, how do you sort of bridge those two worlds together, or do you not really have to bridge them together? Like, what, what, you know, what, how much how much does a data scientist have to go? I have to focus on numbers and models versus I have to focus on like programming something to to do stuff. Like, what, what's their world look like today? It's a great question. I mean, I think I think the, the you know I I. I I think I, I have been or currently I'm part of like four or five different data science uh, uh, institutes or something. And, and I don't even still know. I mean, the data science is such a broad umbrella term. There's right. so many different varietals of us and, and, you know, and types. And so I do think there's a very broad spectrum of, you know, um, the, the, yeah, the, the data scientist that's, you know, you know, kind of an ML engineer and, 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 and just you know, loves writing code to the one that to your point really just wants to, you know, push some buttons and get back to the numbers and the modeling and the outcome. And, you know, we definitely, you know, try to kind of support the range through a layered approach. Um, and, and, you know, we, we have a Python SDK, but on top of that, we have a, a you know, a, a no code UI that allows you to write these labeling functions um, without writing code. So for example, if you're, you know, trying to train a, cl- a contract classifier in, in Snorkelflow, you can, you know, write labeling functions based on clicking on keywords or pressing buttons with kind of um, templates for types of patterns or signals you want to look for. So, um, you know, we, we try to support basically 
if you want to move fast and you're a non-developer or you're just not looking to spend time there, you can just do it in a push button way. Um, uh, but then if you want to go and customize or inject custom logic or really get, you know, uh, creative, you can always fall back to the, the, the Python SDK. And so, I mean, I think a lot of the, um, you know, what we were trying to accomplish from the very beginning was, you know, kind of raise the abstraction, uh, you know, level at which you're, you're interfacing with and programming your machine learning model or your AI application. And the, 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 you know, the first step is the hardest, right? If you think of the way that hand labeled training data is, is kind of like the machine code, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, or really actually, you know, just, the, you know, just think of it as like the ones and zeros literally for a binary classification case. You know, a lot of the effort behind the Snorkel project and the company is just, or, you know, was just getting from that layer to the layer of, of, of you know, assembly language day. But once you get there, you can build all those layers on top and you can go up the stack and down the stack according to the application of the user type, right? Actually, my co-founder, um, uh, Braden, who, is an, who also did his PhD around, you know, snorkel related stuff, ha had a paper actually on how you could use natural language inputs. You could explain in, in natural language, just speaking to the computer, why a certain data point should be labeled a certain way and then use off the shelf uh, semantic parsers to parse that down to code, which then would get dumped into snorkel. So, Basically, once you make this leap from labeling data by hand, kind of the zeros and ones, to labeling your training data with code, then kind of you know the sky is the limit in terms of building layers of abstraction on top of it. And that's actually a lot of what the company you know does and has been doing over the last two years is is you know building a flexible interface through our platform Snorkelflow for you know different data types and use case types and user types. Yep. Well, and, and I think you, you really kind of answered my question. And, and the, the reason I brought it up was, you know, on one hand, you have this, uh, you have this, you know, language level SDK in terms of Python, you can get into, you know, some, some pretty granular level stuff. And then you have, on the other hand, uh, you've got application studio, which you said, like you said, is, is this sort of low code graphical way of, you know, building uh, templates and building applications. And I was like, there must, you know, like I, I think sometimes there's this perspective of like there's one profile of a data scientist, and I think what you really highlighted is it, you know, it's it's like a lot of things. There's sort of a spectrum of you know those that specialize in in sort of you know one part of the the, the, the job, others that don't care about it and want it, certain things to be easy, and so that 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 was useful because I think sometimes uh, like in my head I'm thinking okay, data scientist is sort of certain sort of task the same way you might say like. Okay, they're a they're a Java developer, so they you know there's a tool set that they always use. So that that was super helpful. Um, yeah, and it depends on the pro the problem and stuff too. I mean, the the other thing also that I think goes underemphasized in the AI space, uh, you know, I, the you know big 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 kind of you know point number one, and I don't think it's that uh, avant garde anymore to say it. It was maybe more back in 2015. Is hey, you know, AI is about the data, not the models or the algorithms, which I think you know fewer people will find a controversial statement today, uh, even if it's kind of, you know, phrased in a, in a, in a, in a uh, somewhat reductive way. But the other thing that I still think is, is underemphasized in practice is the necessity of looping in what we often refer to as subject matter experts yep. uh, into the process. And so I think, and I won't ramble here too long, but just for some perspective, and this is actually the very first DARPA funding that, that the Snorkel Project ever had was it's specifically about looping what they call SMEs in the government, subject matter experts. Mm -hmm. uh, our original partners were some genomicists at Stanford. How do you lo loop them into the process of, of AI in a better way than just saying, hey, go, go, go label data for eight months for me, please. 
Um, and, and um, you know, th this idea of, of how do you get subject matter expertise from a human's head into uh, a scalable machine format has been the focus of AI for, you know, decades. But, um, you know, the answer of modern machine learning today for the last, you know, five, 10 years has been, okay, just sit them down, have them label data points one by one, nothing else. They've got all this rich domain knowledge, you know, a doctor, a lawyer, a cyber analyst, network technician, an underwriter, um, throw that all away. Just have them literally just, you know, give zeros and ones labeling data. And that's a nice abstraction. For, and it has been actually a very productive one for the field, because that means the ML engineers can totally abstract away the messy realities of real world data and real world subject matter experts and just focus on optimizing, you know, a fancier model architecture. But I think we've reached a point where it, it starts to become silly and impractical to have this wall between the subject matter expert and the data scientist. So all that is to loop back and say that a big focus of circle flow is about making these interfaces and this process accessible to a non-developer who's, you know, a legal associate or an, an underwriter or a network technician um, to drive the process too. And that's another motivation behind the, the, the kind of, you know, layers, including no-code UIs. Yeah, no, and, and, and that's super helpful because I think, I mean, first and foremost, if, if you don't, if you don't know what the business is ultimately trying to accomplish, since most of these are, uh, you know, exactly. very, very business driven, it, it's, you're right, it, it's very abstract. And, um, but I was curious, you sort of, you sort of led me into my next question, which was, you know, did you, do you go into this with sort of a, a set of use cases that you're like, look, we're, we're pretty confident that, there's going to be a lot of companies that have these common use cases, or have you found that, you know, as you dig in with, with early customers, you, you start to work with their subject matter experts that you're like, Oh, okay. Uh, that concept that you're talking about, you know, whether it's in banking or, you know, government or, or whatever, like we can apply, like that looks very much like this. So like, have, have you been sort of driving use cases? If, if customers been coming to you with a different set as you understand their business, like, how, which end is, you know, is the, is the uh, tail wagging the dog, the dog wagging the tail kind of, <laughs> kind of thing? It's a great question. I'll, I'll, I'll skip the, the, the who's wagging who metaphor. So we don't, uh, yeah. I don't reflect too unfavorable on ourselves, but I'll, 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 I'll use a sanitized go to market terminology instead. And I'll say that, you know, we've, we've been mostly doing an inbound motion um, in that, you know, we had a lot of great collaborations and some visibility during the, the Stanford days. And, you know, we've had, some, some really awesome folks reach out and, you know, even more than, than we've, we've been able to, uh, much more than we've been able to, yeah. to onboard, given that we're, we're trying to, you know, like an early company, uh, you know, be, be um, you know, absolutely committed to customer success and therefore, you know, kind of uh, onboard in batches. And there, you know, we've been somewhat flexible around what use cases uh, we go with. And again, Circleflow is a development platform, again, you know, primarily for data scientists, but other, other stakeholders as well. And, um, you know, it, it can be used pretty flexibly, but we're increasingly starting to do more targeted outbound and more kind of guiding to, to at least to land with specific use cases that we have more robustly templatized. Yeah. And th there's not too much, um, you know, mystery around which use cases you choose. Uh, one of the nice things about ML is they're nice, good abstractions, right? Like, you know, document classification, information extraction. These are kind of standard things that apply to lots of different business use cases that, you know, we've worked on for years. So we kind of know what they are. Um, uh, but we've increasingly been trying to kind of land with ones that we have nicely templatized so that, uh, you know, it's faster for us, faster for the customer, more self-serve. And then, you know, what we find is then, you know, 
once they get a win with one of those, you know, our customers then, you know, fan out and, you know, build new applications that we hadn't even thought of using the basic primitives on the platform. So it's kind of that, you know, a very, you know, I'm not saying anything too, too novel. It's a, it's a kind of land and expand, but it's landing with more kind of templated, uh, you know, specific use cases and then expanding based on just, you know, data science creativity on, on the customer's end. And, right. and, um, and I think, you know, the other, the other heuristics that we often use, this is not an exclusive criteria, but I think, you know, one, one thing to note is that we've been, we've done, you know, when you're in academia, you do, every, you do a breast first search, you do, we've done everything from like genomics to self-driving to, to, you know, ad spam uh, in, in different snorkel deployments. But at mm-hmm. the company, you know, we're most interested in a lot of these settings that, that really, you know, are zero to one, even for the world's largest organizations, right? We work with, you know, two of the top three U.S. banks, a bunch of government agencies, a bunch of Fortune 50 companies in different verticals. You know, these are very sophisticated, well-resourced companies. But a lot of the use cases that we start with, uh, they're still blocked on the data. Yeah. Right. We, we did a paper with Google. Uh, we did deployments in some of their most, you know, significant by revenue uh, uh, um, uh, applications, you know, where they have infinite budget, basically. But you're often still blocking the training data, especially, and I kind of mentioned this before, but especially when you have data that's private, you have data that you require very highly trained experts, a doctor, a legal analyst, a network technician, et cetera. And when you have data that's changing all the time yeah. and, and, you know, um, as much as you hear about streaming in the database world and you hear about it theoretically for decades in the machine learning world, most of machine learning is still done in, in batch and most conceptions of training data sets are still of these like static, you know, assets, like the, 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 the benchmark training data sets that the last decade of ML progress has been predicated on haven't changed in a decade. Right. Uh, if you've heard of something called ImageNet, that's what kicked off a lot of the exciting progress. It's a bunch of, you know, uh, cats, dogs, hot dogs, you know, kind of images like that labeled that a lot of the uh, state-of-the-art image models kind of got trained on and caused this big explosion around, you know, uh, image modeling with, with, um, with modern architectures, modern machine learning architectures. You know, it took a couple of years to create, uh, uh, even though it didn't require experts or, or private data. It hasn't changed since. So a lot of machine learning is based around this idea that the training data set is this fixed thing. But in the reality of, of really any data science project business I've ever seen, your data is coming in, is changing constantly. There's, there's, there's what's called distributional drift of just, you know, let's say you're scanning news articles, like, you know, uh, for, for financial crime, right? What happens when people start saying stonk or, or, or diamond hands? Right. And right. your model's never seen that before. Uh, you know, h- how do you adjust to that? But also, what if there's an upstream team that does all the, you know, is doing the data pre-processing and they change a little something? That can, that, something as small as that can throw off your model. And then what if your downstream line of business team that's the consumer says, ah, I want to tag 10 types of entities instead of seven this quarter. Yep. And so the modern conception of, of train data, which is the bedrock that all of ML rests on, is completely just unprepared for this. Uh, it's just, okay, great, relabel everything. And so even for the largest organizations, this ends up being a zero to one blocker and, you know, snorkel flow doesn't push button automatically solve this, but it means you can sit down for a couple hours or a day or two and adapt just like you would with any other production software uh, outside of machine learning versus having to basically start from ground, you know, from, from, from square one every time. Right. So that kind of gives a sense of maybe some of the, the use cases that we end up finding most resonant and going after to start with. 
Yeah, no, and, and that makes a ton of sense, especially you know when you when you sort of uh, you know define it as zero to one. I mean, you think about um, you know you you can go to the the companies in the valley, the, you know, Facebooks and Googles, and they've been essentially data companies forever. So they've thought about yeah. these yeah, flows. Yeah. You go to the banks or you go to insurance companies or whoever, like they've you know number one they've sort of just coming out of a decade of people telling them to build data lakes because they had hundreds of disparate data sources um but but you know organizationally they're not designed as data companies so yeah i mean it, them them getting from zero to one it seems you know in 2021 like uh, how can that how can that be but you know if you think organizationally and historically where they've been to it makes it makes a ton of sense and they've been sort of begging for people to go look you know, help me with some of these, these problems that, you know, are just big kind of boulders to push up the hill. So that, that makes a ton of sense as to kind of how well, it, 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 it's also, and just to put in the word for, I mean, certainly, you know, our early customers, like, I think what actually makes this, this pain point, and I think many around it in kind of the ML ops and data management space. So, so, um, so painful or so resonant is the fact that you have incredibly smart people and, and you have these, uh, you know, a lot of these organizations really have put big bets down on becoming AI first, have just incredible teams, incredible technology, incredible infrastructure. It's, but, but then they, they're blocked on the data right. or they're blocked on some ops consideration. And so that actually makes it more painful because you have all the, you have all the, 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 pardon me, raw talent, all the infrastructure, all the tools. Uh, I mean, many of them are out in, in the open source effectively come on, but you're, you're stymied by, you know, waiting for your line of business team, to label 100,000 more contracts over two quarters uh, before you can literally even turn the crank. And so that's, that's the reality we often see today. People have already put down tons of chips on AI. And then when they hit this wall of data, and again, I think that's a snorkel story, but it's also for, you know, many of the other, you know, complementary or, 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 you know, other, you know, techniques or companies in the space and the kind of, you know, data management meets ops meets, meets machine learning space you know, when you have that much talent and you're revving to go and you put your chips down and you're blocked on something like this, uh, that's, that's, that's a real pain point. Yeah, no, it makes, makes a ton of sense. Um, I want to ask you, I want to ask you two real quick questions before I let you go. Cause I know you guys are super busy. Um, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about it's, it's a development platform. Um, it's a piece of a bigger puzzle, right? There's modeling, uh, technologies. There's, is there kind of a, a standard stack or is the stack, kind of flexible enough because there are so much stuff that's done with open source and, and the open source communities kind of, you know, make things fit together. Do, do you see a stack? Is it, you know, like on top of Snorkel? Is it TensorFlow? Is it certain other things? Or is it really kind of depend on the problem in the industry? It's a great question. So, I mean, we have our standard, you know, Snorkel stack diagram and, sure. and stack that includes, you know, a lot of the, the kind of, you know, bedrock, uh, um, you know, uh, platforms and, and open source repos, you know, for models, for frameworks. I won't uh, answer PyTorch versus TensorFlow versus sure, MXNet. Sure. Uh, uh, we're flexible. Yeah. I'll say agnostic there. But, you know, all those things kind of, you know, are part of uh, a, a snorkel, a snorkel flow, along with some of our open source code over the years that, that are all component libraries. And then, you know, in turn, uh, our whole, our whole, our whole bet with snorkel was that the open source and the tooling around models and infrastructure was just exploding, uh, especially out in the open source. So we think of interoperability as a, as a first class uh, part of our design. A lot of that is we have this Python SDK that anyone who can write Python can put stuff in, take stuff out, you know, mix and match components. And I think you know the experience that most people who go into the enterprise will find, especially in, in, in a booming space like this, is that 
you know, you have to play nice with, with existing stacks and other, other, uh, you know, other tool sets. And so we, we're pretty flexible on that front. You know, we care, our whole vision from the very beginning has been to define a new workflow. So we actually do have a fairly end to end platform, Mm -hmm. but people can mix and match very easily. We have some customers who, you know, will actually train models in snorkel flow, but just to, to get their training data good enough. And then they'll export their training data and they'll go, you know, train their own custom models. We have some customers who will, um, you know, train models, but then uh, export them and, and serve them on other ML platforms and then go back to SnorkelFlow to modify them. That's actually our current, you know, preferred um, uh, kind of pattern, but we're very flexible in general. Yeah. Well, I think you have to be in, in enterprise AI today. Oh yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. One last question before you go, since, uh, since you've been through sort of all of the school, uh, if you will, uh, through PhD and everything. Um, you know, there, there's always lots of folks who say like, Hey, uh, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to get my kid into this space that could become, you know, data science and so forth. Like, you know, beyond the, the stuff you take in high school, like what's, what's the modern path? You know, is it, is it math? Is it, you know, what, what types of math or, um, other things would somebody take if they, kind of wanted to go down the path to be like, I would be productive in, in this domain. Um, has it changed a lot? Is it certain, certain core things they should be focused on? Yeah, a great question. And I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, hope my dad never listens to this because he's just going to get another, I told you so about all the things that he told me to take in college and I didn't and then had to make up later. Um, but I, you know, I think, I, I, okay, I mean, I think a lot of people have, have lots of great answers on this that I, I, I'll just be parroting and won't do justice to. But, you know, I think statistics, first of all, is something it'll sound, you know, uh, crotchety and old school to say this. But again, machine learning is at its base, just counting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we have better and bigger scale and fancier ways of counting. But that's, you know, what's at the core of it. Um, and, uh, you know, understanding, uh, you know, the, the, the fundamentals of statistics, they don't map as easily to some of the modern uh, deep learning techniques that we're still on the academic side, you know, as a field trying to understand. But that kind of intuition, uh, I think, is very important. And, and so, so statistics and linear algebra, which, you know, would have been the classic pillars of a lot of the old ML approaches. Now, sometimes, you know, people say, oh, you don't need that anymore. I still think, you know, I'll put in a vote <laughs> that they, they're still very important. Mm-hmm. Um, I also would put in a, a pitch for just anything uh, if you're talking, especially, you know, uh, high school, undergrad, et cetera, but, but at any time in life, anything that emphasizes just, you know, written and verbal communication. I know that's a very generic thing to say, uh, but whenever you have a space that is, you know, as complex and noisy and, and teeming as the AI space is today, right. Just communicating what the heck you're trying to do and how you relate to other things. And I'm not saying I did a good job of it, but you know, that is just commensurately more meaningful um, in my view. So I'd say that's, that's something that's one of the generic answers I give uh, when talking to, uh, you know, at any point. And then I think beyond that, just like being able to code the great thing, you know, is that, you know, there, there, the bar to start playing around with machine learning tools out in the open source has, has, has never been lower. Um, it's still tough, but if you can teach yourself to code a little bit and then just go and hack around the open source, it's never been a better time to just, you know, take a Coursera course, go to, you know, one of the many great, you know, resources for kind of, you know, open source machine learning frameworks and just kind of play around and learn on your own too. So that's, yeah. that's a, that's a wonderful facet of this space today. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's uh, it, it's good advice, and I'll I'll double down on the uh, on the aspect of of communications. I know you know sometimes uh, uh, the folks that are very very technical go, well, that's that's a secondary thing. But like you said, at the end of the day, um, no matter how good your numbers are, if if the people who then have to go implement it or fund it or whatever can't understand it you know, it's just a bunch of numbers and stuff. So, um, excellent, excellent advice. Alex, uh, I have learned a ton. Uh, I know we've kept you probably a little longer than we expected, but, um, this has been, this has been great. Uh, hopefully folks, you know, we're always trying to sort of peel back the onion of what makes up successful AI, you know, where's the industry moving and we're excited about, uh, the stuff that you guys are working on. So thanks so much for the time today. Um, folks with that, I'm going to wrap well, it up. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, folks with that, I'm going to wrap it up for, you know, uh, again, want to thank Alex for the time, uh, for myself and Aaron. We always want to thank you all for, for giving us the time, uh, week in and week out for listening, for telling a friend, for helping us grow the show and, uh, giving us feedback on Apple podcasts and everywhere else you listen to. So with that, I will wrap it up and we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 